Were you on the team during the Malice in the Palace? Yeah. Just give us a brief. I, I don't want you to get to Just give us a brief on kind of, yeah, what was like even going through your mind during that? There was players fighting each other, coaches fighting players, our our coaches and our players fighting. And finally it gets calmed down and Ron Artest looks around and he goes, y'all think we're going to get fined for that? And then the next time we went back, because we had to go back for the next game, they called in a bomb threat. They closed the arena down and we had to clear out and they searched for a bomb. And they're like, it's up to you guys if you want to go back in and play. I'm like, no, we're not. And I got outvoted by a bunch of idiots that were like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll risk my life to go play a basketball game. I was like, guys, I got a lot to live for. I really like this thing called life. I'm not risking it to go. Like, what if there's a bomb in there? And they're like, well, they didn't find one. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point when you, when you have a bomb in a building. Dad used to tell me all the time. Used to tell me all the time, son, don't worry about the mules, just load the wagon. What's up, everybody? If you are a college football fan like me, if you know a college football fan that's in your life, you need to go cop this shirt. New designs dropping all the time. It's the perfect gift with the holiday season coming around. If you don't have this thing, you're missing out. Great material, great fabric. I wear it all the time. Go get yours today. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk Unplugged. I'm Chris Tehan, along with my co-host, Mitch Lightfoot. We have a big-time guest today, Kansas legend Scott Pollard. Scott, how are we doing? Uh, I'm getting old. Uh, that's uh, that's what that means when I start getting introduced as a legend. You are, you are a legend. You are a legend. It's a great thing. Scott, I wanted to ask you, you've been following along with the Jayhawks, obviously, this year. Uh, this past Indiana game, what did you see from the Hawks in that game? And what do you think that we need to do to make sure we're successful down in March? Well, it's uh, there's some things that are typical, and you guys know Bill Self better than I do, um, but there's some things that are typical of a Bill Self team that are happening right now, and it's you know lack of a bench production, and there's some inconsistencies and even among the starters uh, and who we can depend on night in and night out, and that's typical for this time of year. Uh, it's also typical this time of year that somebody on the bench or, or the bench as a collective starts getting better and starts contributing more. Um, so... Uh, you know, casual fans might hit the panic button like, oh, no, we're there's nothing going right. Like, we don't have a bench at all. And they're just, you know. Uh, but, again, that, that's kind of a typical Bill Self thing, I think, where, it, you know, he goes heavy on the starters early. And then um, they start to the, – the bench starts to per- perform. And then we get into league play, and, and it's a whole balanced team, and we have a deep playoff run. So um, – I, I just feel like that's kind of on par for for what Coach Self does, and uh, I, I specifically the Indiana game. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's been the last couple games. I think that our pick and roll defense has been exposed a little bit. Um, it it looks like um, big fella doesn't move too well, uh, and they're going to try to. Other teams are going to try to exploit that. Um, I personally, I'd love because, you know, when I finished, I was what second, I think all time in block shots. I've been mm-hmm. passed, but um, I'd like to see him blocking the shots more and, and being a little bit more of a rim protector, but that's just not his, his game. It's not his style. So I'm not going to get mad at him for not being that guy. Um, but uh, you know, th- there has to be somebody in there that we can push defenders or push offensive players towards uh, and know that there's going to be somebody there to, to at least alter shots uh, as opposed to getting all the way to the basket. Marquette did a great job of that. I think Indiana did a great job of it as well. Uh, we just we made the run at the right time. 100%. And you talked about ball screen defense, and it, it's, no, it's no secret out there that Hunter does not move as well as some of the bigs that we've had in the past. Do you think that's more on the guards to recognize that, hey, maybe we need to give them a little bit more help off those ball screens? Because the Big 12 is such a guard-heavy league now. You look at teams like Houston. You look at teams like Baylor. If you're dropping off the ball screens that don't have good ball screen defense, those guys will go for 50. Do you think it's more on the guards to make sure they get over and only have him be a one-slide help kind of guy, or are we still going to be down in ball screens? Um, <laughs> that, that's an adjustment that's going to come based on who's on the floor. Uh, helping him out. I think some guys are going to be able to help him out better than others and, and get there. And then there's going to be guys that are just going to stay on their man because they got to. And, and again, I think other coaches on opposing teams are going to take advantage of that. They're going to put a shooter on the opposite side. So you can't leave him and go help. Uh, <clears throat> so 
you know, it's, it's going to be a, a personnel dependent uh, maneuver, but yeah, it's something that probably needs to be addressed because it's obvious. I mean, if we're talking about it, the other coaches know about it too. So they're going to keep hammering it and taking advantage of it until coach self makes an adjustment and the team, uh, you know, gets an understanding of, Hey, we've got to help big fella out or we're going to have to down the screens and, and keep them home. Uh, but even then, like I said, he, he's not a, a, a great rim protector. So, you know, maybe having him stand still down low is better because uh, he'll be there. Uh, but, you know, we don't want to get him in foul trouble either. Yeah. I, I think the one thing that, that it does bode well for Kansas is the fact that we have Dewan, who's already been defensive player of the year in the Big 12. We have K- KJ, who's, who's a great defender in himself. Kevin, who is in the running for Big 12 defender of the year. So, like, there's three guys right there that can help cover up for him. But if it's all about having all five connected and, and as soon as as soon as Hunter can either start to alter those shots or, or we change something up to where he doesn't have to move as much and he can just stay and be a seven foot two guy and stand in the paint and try it and at least stand there and block, like alter shots mm-hmm. uh, that we need to do something like that but next question I wanted I wanted to get to is the rivalry with Mizzou having it be back do you think that the the games that have happened currently like have the same passion as they did in the 90s or is that something that people need to that we need to understand and, and people don't quite understand right now. I, I think it's hard for, for young people to understand. Um, the old folks like myself remember the big eight and, and the big six, even uh, the people older than me um, and that rivalry and how it was continuous. Uh, I, I do like seeing it back, uh, but at the same time, it's kind of like the Indiana home and homes. Now it's kind of like the Kentucky home and homes now where it's just another non-conference game. <clears throat> Does it mean as much? No, I don't think so. Uh, because you're not going to see them twice a year and then in the big 12 tournament. And then in, you know, when you, the familiarity, I think breeds, uh, the rivalry. Yeah. And so when you're only playing them once a year uh, and you're not going to see them again, uh, and potentially, you know, the, 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 contract runs out. <laughs> no. Um, it's just, it's, it's different. Um, so do I like seeing it back on the schedule? Yeah, but it's not the same. And, yeah. um, it, it just won't be because of those factors. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is cool to, to reminisce, to, to talk about how it's, you know, such an incredible, uh, rivalry it was, um, and how it started and all that. The, the history part of it is what I learned as a Jayhawk once I was in school. I didn't know anything about it before I was there. Uh, and uh, it, it became one of my favorite teams to play. And uh, if I remember correctly, that's the only team that I didn't have a winning record against. We tied uh, over my four years with Missouri. Uh, I don't think we had a winning record. Everybody else we did. But I think Missouri was the one that we actually had a tie record with because you just never know. I mean, shoot, it was brutal. It, it yeah. was, uh, we, I mean, we love hated playing against them. We get stuff thrown at us by the antlers, uh, I mean, batteries, uh, coins. Um, they, they were bad back then. They would, they made some really nasty signs. One of our, one time we got off the bus and somebody had the, the an effigy of, I can't remember whose Jersey was, if it was Paul's or uh, jocks, but they had it burning from a noose. I mean, it was some, there was some nasty stuff uh, that those dudes did. Yeah. I mean, it was, and and I've heard worse uh, from previous years, but um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that is just, uh, that rivalry was, was special. And uh, now it's, uh, it's back on and I'm glad to see it, but it's not, I don't think ever going to be the same. Is there anything that uh, Coach Williams did to, like, educate you guys on the rivalry? Or was that intensity itself, like, going to the games, having the antlers act like that? Was that the education itself? It was both. Roy used to tell us about how much he hated Norm. Norm Stewart, the coach of, the, of Missouri. I hate that man. I mean, we knew they played golf together. We knew they did charity events together. But he's like, I, hate, I tell you what, if I get that man alone, I'll take him out and he may get me once, but he's not going to end me. Let me tell you this little young fellas. If I see that man alone on a street and I can get away with it, I'm going to take that man out. (laughs) So, I mean, he tried to breathe that it was just hateful from the whole, you know, from the get go. 
And, and in some ways it was, and, and, uh, but that, that, that is part of what made it special. I mean, the, the whole crowd would be chanting, sit down norm, because he didn't like to sit down on the bench. He was always standing, um, you know, things like that. And then I think at the end when he retired, somebody got him a rocking chair, put it on the court, uh, which I thought was cool. I mean, it was both an honor and, you know, it was kind of a sideways insult, but, um, <clears throat> I, I, Roy definitely helped fan the flames of that rivalry. And then, you know, you do a little history. I was, that, that was what I was going to do is teach history in high school. So I started learning some American history myself about, you know, the importance of that rivalry and where it came from. Yeah. And you've been, I, uh, you've been my favorite videos is, is, oh, yeah. is, the, is the Mizzou hype video that you're in and you're talking about how like they came to town, they, they burned our houses. They killed our horses. That's in that's in the video, and we watched that a bunch before uh, before the rivalry restarted back in like 2017 when we played them in an exhibition. I remember we, we watched that video kind of as a team back in back in the dorms, and that was pretty cool seeing you. That's in it. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I could go on, but it, it was a, a cool uh, rivalry and. and uh, began with actual bloodshed. You can talk about other rivalries in, in, in college basketball or football or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> to my knowledge, none of them started <laughs> with people burning each other's houses down and yeah. killing each other, you know, and, and things, w- war was, it was guerrilla warfare basically. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's pretty it's unique. More. Yeah. And you summed that up very well, but you also have been very vocal on Twitter about the Chiefs chant at the end of the National Anthem. Is that something that's rooted from just the Chiefs being located in Missouri, or is it something about just how special the Cathedral of College Basketball Island Fieldhouse is that we shouldn't be bringing anything from the outside in? Because I've been a big Chiefs guy my whole life, and I always enjoyed hearing it because that meant that we were doing well. I mean, I used to go in 2008 when the Chiefs were 1-9 in nine or one in whatever it was. So is that something that came from just your hatred of Missouri, or is that something that just came from, hey, let's keep basketball pure inside the Cathedral? Uh, it's the second part. Appreciate it, Mitch and Chris. Before we get back to Raw Talk, I got to tell you guys about the best way to make money on sports. I've been in search of the best way to fire on sports for the last year or so. I've tried every sports book, all the different apps, but Prize Picks is the best way to make money on sports. On Prize Picks, you pick players and not teams. Each player has a set total stat projection. So let's say Patrick Mahomes has a higher or lower than 220 passing yards. If you think he's going to have more, you just click on more. When it hits, you make a bunch of money. I just hit a four-player pick on last Last night, 10x in my money, 100 bucks to win a thousand. And the best part is, you can go to prizefix.com slash rockchalk and use the code rockchalk for a 100% deposit match up to $100. That's prizefix.com slash rockchalk. Use the promo code rockchalk for a 100% deposit match up to 100 bucks. Who knows what you can turn that 100 bucks into? I turned mine into a thousand last night. Let me know what you do in the comments. First of all, I don't like anybody cheering for anybody besides the Jayhawks in Allen Fieldhouse. It's the Cathedral of College Basketball. Uh, it's a special place, and one of the things that makes it special is the fans cheering so loud. I mean, it's the loudest indoor arena in the world. It's a record-setting place. So why silly that? Why, why make it a little less special by cheering for a pro football team in a different state? That part doesn't make sense to me at all. I don't. I don't go to hockey games and, and wear Boston Celtics gear. Um, that's just me. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I will say that <laughs> a lot of those same people that do that Chiefs cheer are the people that were really going nuts about somebody kneeling during the national anthem. So you got to pick one. And you yeah. can't do both. You you can't be upset if somebody's kneeling during the anthem, but you're also cheering for the Chiefs during the anthem. To me, it's the same thing. You you either respect the anthem and you you just let it play out, uh, or do your Chiefs thing at, at Arrowhead where it makes sense. And you know, like the foot, I don't even like it at the football games. Uh, you know, I was at a Kansas game with my son, uh, the Kansas State game. Uh, cause Ozzy was getting recruited by Kansas. So they invited us out for a game and 
and they did it at the end. And I'm sitting there like, you know, we're trying to build something with the football program and, and we've got it, you know, we've got a great coach. We've got a great staff. We've got winners. We've got highly rated recruits coming in now and two years in a row football bowls and they're chanting chiefs at, at the end of the anthem. I mean, how special is that for the recruits to come in and say, you know, they're, I'm from Texas or I'm from California or I'm from Iowa, whatever. They don't care about the chiefs and they're coming in and they're hearing chiefs, the home of the chiefs. Like, well, maybe I'm not going to school here because they're, they're cheering for a different team than the team that I'm here to play for. Yeah. And that's my concern. And a Q, uh, I was with the recruits. I was sitting with them, obviously. And a, more than a couple of them, it was my son, but also some other kids were like, did they just yell chiefs? Like, why did they do that? You know, they're, they're, they're like, well, that, that's dumb. And so that's my thing. I want Kansas athletics to be special because they are. And I think that the fans are why Kansas athletics are special. And if I could change it, I would. I would make sure that all the fans are like, you know what? I'm here to cheer on the Jayhawks. Not my favorite pro sports team. Uh, I have a favorite pro sports team too, but it has nothing to do with them being uh, from the Missouri rivalry. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Raiders fan. I promise. It really is just that I think Kansas athletics are special and I don't want them cheering that at the volleyball games. I don't want to, you know, whatever, any, any sporting event, if they do it at baseball <laughs> games. Uh, and also I will, <clears throat> I will add to that, that personally, I don't think they should play the anthem before every athletic event. That's just my opinion. I think it's uh, a time that players are warmed up and then you got to spend five minutes cooling off, waiting for the, the person to sing or, the, or for it to play. I personally, as many games as I played in, I'd prefer to just stay warm and let's go. If you're going to play it, play it early uh, or just not at all. But I don't think I'm going to win that battle. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that the thing that is, has changed for, for us uh, in our last year, Chris, was is we were back in the locker room uh, during when the national anthem was sang, and we would run out, we would come out of the tunnel after it, after it was, uh, after it was already done. So that was like the time where coaches having a speech with us in the locker room. And then we would come out on the court, warm up and play. So that, that has been a little different for us in at least basketball. Yeah. yeah. And we, we did that. I mean, I think they still do that. I've been to two games this year and both of the games they did that where it was just the cheerleaders out there with whoever's singing it. So it has changed over the last, I think five years, our first couple of years, they did it if I mm -hmm. remember correctly, but yeah, so that's something that has changed. Scott, I wanted to transfer over and talk to you a little bit about your time at Kansas. Uh, first off, I want to start in a little chronological order. Your recruiting story with uh, Coach Williams. What was that like? What was it, what was it like having Coach Williams come and, and recruit you? Um, well, you know, like everything else in my life, uh, hard work um, garnered me the respect and, and the, the opportunities that I've, I've gotten in my life. It wasn't given. Uh, I'm the youngest of six. All five of my siblings uh, got scholarship offers. Uh, and played Division One, with the exception of my sister, who just didn't want to play uh, college athletics. But um, I was on the uh, – uh, I was known because of that, uh, because of my brothers. Uh, but at the same time, no one was recruiting me in San Diego. I was just another big white guy, you know. Um, but then uh, my sophomore year of high school, I mean – I was getting recruited. I got letters and my first one I got from Jim Beheim at Syracuse in seventh grade. Uh, Cause that was back when they mailed you letters, you know, yeah. you guys know what letters yeah. are. It wasn't an email. Uh, it wasn't Twitter. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we, uh, I, I was, you know, known because of, of my family and because of the size and all that. But, um, you know, I still wasn't getting really looked at until I started beating up guys that were signed, uh, that were getting looked at. And all of a sudden, you know, so I had Jerry Green, who was one of Roy's assistants, uh, that never was actually there when I was there. Uh, he was the first one that saw me. And then he took a job somewhere else, I think Oregon or Tennessee. I can't remember which one he went to first. Uh, and then it went to Kevin Stallings, who was another assistant. And uh, Kevin said the same thing. Like, hey, you got to check this kid out. 
and then Roy showed up and Roy took over. I was, then I was just, so I, it made me feel special because I, it, it, I jumped from assistant to assistant to the head man himself. And that's who ended up, that's the only person I talked to from that point on once Roy took over. So, um, I picked KU because of Roy. Um, I, I was going to stay home. I, I grew up in San Diego and I wanted to go to UCLA really bad, uh, or Arizona. I actually verbally committed to Arizona. They, uh, uh, had me out, had one of my former college, he, he didn't, we didn't play together, but a kid that went to my high school was my host at Arizona. Uh, they took me to a party and there was a lot of pretty girls there. And, uh, I, I liked that. And so, uh, I, I, I verbally committed to Arizona. Uh, Lute Olson's wife made me breakfast after the party. Uh, I mean, it was, they, they treated me very, pretty special, but I would say the one thing was at practice, uh, the team was down on the court practicing and Lute was up in the stands, just sitting there, just watching. And then people would come in and start talking to him and he'd talk to him and the practice is going on. And he's just kind of like not really paying attention. The assistants were running the practice. I thought that was a little weird. Uh, but Roy took a vested interest, or at least it seemed like it. And Roy made me feel special. He made me feel like I was the only one uh, that he was recruiting. He said he wasn't going to eat dessert until I committed somewhere. Uh, and so that's what, how I committed to him, actually, is uh, when we were I was out there for late night, and back then it was midnight. <clears throat> and being in San Diego, you know, it's not really an indoor sports city. I'd never seen 17,000 people inside ever in my life. And it was midnight. <laughs> I was like, what, what is wrong with these people? You know, I, I just had never heard of that. And it was amazing to me. And so that helped for sure. But it was also, you know, Roy was uh, Roy. And um, back to my brothers, they all went to college and all of their co coaches changed during their time in college. And they all ended up transferring. And I didn't want that. And so I said, coach, if you promise me you're not leaving, uh, you're not going to get fired. I know that. But you're not leaving to go back to North Carolina. Then I'm coming here. And he promised me. He said, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. This is this is where I want to be. Um, funny story. I heard. I don't know if this is true. You'd have to ask everybody since me. But I heard that that promise uh, was was told through generations. And the last guys that he promised were um, Kirk Heinrich and Nick Collison because everybody else made them made him promise that he wasn't leaving and uh, he made that promise and Nick and Kirk were the last guys that he promised that he wasn't going to leave um, so I, I like I said I think I heard that but I don't know for sure if that's true but Roy uh, is, is he still is, is uh, like a father figure to me I lost my dad in high school uh, so I kind of went through the recruiting part alone uh, with my mom. Uh, and uh, I was homeless for a little while. I, I was couch surfing. Uh, my mom went to go live with one of my brothers. And so I was, stayed in San Diego my junior year. And I was just kind of like living with whoever would live me. I wasn't like homeless on the street, but I wasn't in the house with my mom. Uh, and, you know, so I definitely needed somebody that was going to be there and be a father figure for me. Uh, and Roy was that guy. He just called me a little while ago to check in on me. Um, and uh, so we've we've kept in touch, you know, even though he has no reason to keep in touch with me. He's still that guy for me. That, I mean, that's that's super, super cool. I, I've I've only heard good things about Roy. I was obviously probably four year, or yeah, around four years old when he left Kansas. So I had a little bit of hatred for him, but that was just because he left and I knew everybody in my household was super upset about it. He left the program leaps and bounds ahead of where it was. So Roy, I mean, he played a pivotal part in college basketball history. Oh, I was pissed at him too, by the way. Just so you know, <laughs> I, I was like, you're going to go back and follow Dean Smith. I, there was actually a little bit of, uh, I was in the papers. I got quoted. I said some not so nice things about Roy. I was pissed off uh, that he left. Um, and, you know, I wanted him to be the guy uh, forever at Kansas. You know, the guy that retired at Kansas. And, you know, I, I'll never forget Danny Manning's statement when, when that happened, the transition to Bill Self. 
And Danny said, Kansas basketball was great before Roy Williams. Kansas basketball was great with Roy Williams. And Kansas basketball is going to be great after Roy Williams. And he's right. <laughs> yeah, he was right. Couldn't have had a better hire. Yeah. So we talked about your recruitment and how you got to Kansas. You obviously mentioned Midnight Madness, Late Night in the Fog, where it was at 12 o'clock at night. You said you'd never seen so many people inside of Allen Fieldhouse. But what was your actual welcome to Kansas more, where it was like, this place is different? <laughs> um, so Jock Vaughn and I uh, had played with each other in some all-star games, and, and it wasn't exactly a handshake deal, but we both kind of mentioned, like, hey, man, if you go to Kansas, I'm going. Like we we played well together in those tur- in those games, and we thought we liked each other. So we're roommates at, at the Jayhawk Towers back in the old days. You guys don't know about that, but that's where we used to live, uh, and they're still there. I just drove by them a couple months ago when I was out there for that football game. Um, still, still the just the brick jungle. But uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so Jock and I are rooming together, and. Um, I mean, it just, it just, it just happened. Indiana, Kansas. And, uh, Jock hits that game winner. I was wearing a, a, a different Jersey. I was in there at the end of the game wearing number 54, uh, because I'd been scrapping and I got blood all over me. And so I had to change jerseys. They didn't have a number 31 another one. So I was wearing blank 54. Uh, and I went out to try to set a screen on him and the defender just went right under me. And I had, I think I had three or four fouls and coach was like, do not foul. I was like, I got you. So I just stood there like a dummy and Jock just dribbled by and the, I didn't end up setting a screen because I couldn't move. I didn't want to move and get an offensive foul. So, and then I just dove to the basket. Jock hits that three and wins the game. Damon Bailey had 33 that game against us. And we, we they were good. Uh, Indiana was really good that year. And we kind of did a good job. I think Calvin Chaney was on that team. And I think we did a good job slowing him down. But Damon Bailey, their guard, had 33. So... I mean, it was, it was a rough game. Not only did that place erupt, and it was like, holy crap, what the f- – uh, you know what? I'm just going to cuss. Holy shit, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that was incredible in itself. But then we got back home to the Jayhawk Towers, and our door was covered and notes and there was balloons and just all kinds of stuff taped to the door like awesome shot jock you guys rock rock chalk jayhawk that was when we were like this doesn't happen in southern california where both of us are from you know they like i said earlier this <clears throat> outdoor venues in in southern california People don't congregate inside. UCLA games aren't sold out night in and night out because people have other stuff to do outside in the nice weather. It was that was my welcome to Kansas moment, and it was because of Jock, uh, like most of the moments in Kansas were. Uh, but it was uh, that that's when we both were just like, man, we made the right choice. This place is special. Scott, I wanted to touch on a little bit. Obviously, you played for Coach Williams, and, and you've watched a lot of Coach Self basketball. Are there any similarities between the two coaching styles that you've seen? Um, <laughs> I've seen y'all's practices. No. <laughs> Not similar? <laughs> we, we pretty much ran from minute one of every practice. We had a practice plan, and it would be posted on the wall before practice had an offensive emphasis of the day, a defensive emphasis of the day and a thought of the day. And we had to know those at any point during practice and coach loved picking on freshmen. Uh, you, if he said, what's Scott, what's the offensive emphasis of the day? And I didn't know it. If I was whether I was crimson or blue, that team had to get on the end line and run if I didn't know it. And so it, the intensity of, making a mistake and having to, your teammates pay for it was always there from minute one. Um, it, it, it works for both of them, but they are very, very different coaches. Um, I, <laughs> well, just different. Yeah. Just different. Like I, I, like I said, I've, I've been to a couple coach self practices and I'm like, this is like an NBA shoot around. Uh, it's, it's very relaxed. Um, there's not a lot of yelling. There's a lot of poking fun. There's a lot of sarcasm. Uh, and, and there's a lot of, uh, work getting done. 
Um, but I mean, our practices, you, it was definitely quiet. Nobody talked, but Roy Williams, um, and we'd break, you know, we'd break up bigs and smalls. And then the assistant coaches would talk during that time. But when coach was talking, nobody was talking. And it's just, it, it was a very different style. When I went and saw coach self's practice for the first time, I was like, everybody I've, was talking. Every single person was talking all at the same time. I'm like, whoa, that's just, it's a big difference in styles. I've heard some rumors that the back in the day, obviously there wasn't the practice gym there. So you guys did all of your practicing in the field house, even during mm-hmm. the summer. And for oh, those yeah, that was... don't know, the, 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 the field house turns into a sauna during the summer. Yeah. There's no air conditioning in there. And there actually used to be a track inside the concourse on the main floor. Oh, that was a track when I was there, you know, where like there's the wall of memories yeah, and yeah. everything. Like, there was a track there. We used to run around that. And they're like the rafters would be in the way. You had to like kind of duck, um, especially for the seven footers. Like yeah, like you had to you had to run on the outside of the track because if you took the inside route, you could knock your head on one of the rafters. Um, so it's it's changed quite a bit. Yeah, and we either practice there or we'd go to Robinson Gymnasium, which is across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we played all our pickup games. Same thing though. There's no air conditioning in there, um, or there wasn't. And um, but yeah, we. It, it was different, man. I, I, I'll never forget. We were we were undefeated my senior year, except when we went to Paris. And uh, we went to Paris and played these semi-pro teams where they had a couple of Americans on the team and, so, you know, whatever. And they had special rules. And we, we lost. I'm, I'm not going to go into depth about it, but we lost. <clears throat> we get on the Concorde, go back home, land in New York, get on a plane, go to Kansas City land in Kansas city, get on a bus, go back to the field house. And we're thinking we got a day off because we just traveled from France and Roy says taped it on the court in 30 minutes. Oh, God. Uh-oh. Because someone took advantage of the free wine on the Concord. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was a rough day. My friends. <laughs> That's crazy. I was, something, I was at 80,000 feet or wherever, however high the Concorde flies, and I'm drinking wine because they're like, yeah, have some wine. Here, there's some more wine. It's on you. It's on the house. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> and then we get back to the field house, and Roy's like taped it on the court in 30 minutes. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh <laughs> Not a single free throw was made. <laughs> no, it, we did. We had a drill called Drill de Paris because we didn't play good enough defense. We did defensive slides back and forth across the key for 30 seconds and then stopped and then did it again and then stopped and then did it again. It's called <laughs> drill de Paris because we didn't slide across the, the lane and help our teammates enough. And we all got in foul trouble. And actually I was the only one in the second half of the first game. Apparently three fouls was the rule. It was 10 minute halves and you get three fouls for the game. Well, three of our starters, Paul, Jock and Rafe all had three fouls in the first 10 minutes. And so I'm lining up for the tip off in the second half. And the guy goes, um, that guy, that guy, and that guy are fouled out. I don't know what the fuck you're doing. And I was like, no, no, they only have three. He goes, yeah, that's it. They're gone. Roy lost his mind. Apparently he didn't know the rules either. (laughs) (laughs) He was not happy. He didn't cuss, but he was not happy. Um, so that, that was our, our trip overseas. And, uh, that was our only loss until we got to the, the tournament and lost to Arizona. But or Missouri, sorry. Again, back to the Missouri. I hate those guys. Hate them. <laughs> hate them. They always they always end up coming up. So you you obviously, I mean, your four years at Kansas probably had the most talented rosters, arguably, throughout recent memory. I mean, you played with Jock, you played with Paul Pierce, Rafe. I mean, you played with absolutely everybody you could probably think of who went to the league in the 90s. If you had to pick one of those guys, the most talented person you played with or alongside of Kansas, who was it? Man, um, it's tough because Jock was such a leader and and willed our team to victory so many times um, and and distributed the basketball. Um, You know, he was a pass-first guy just like Juan. Um, he, he's a guy that, that was such a leader on the court. I don't know that we'd win many games without Jock. 
but as far as just flat out talent, I mean, Paul was like Bambi. We called him Bambi. Uh, he was all knees and elbows. He just, he was skinny. Uh, but that dude just, he just stayed after practice every day and played basketball with anybody that would play. Uh, managers, he'd pick on the managers and be like, you, you got to stay and play because nobody else wants to stay after we had just run ourselves to death. And, and Paul's like, I need more. And so Paul just, his, his athleticism and his, his basketball knowledge became so apparent, uh, at, at that age, even though he wasn't the, the finished product, you know, the truth yet, we all knew it. So it's hard to pick between him and Rafe because Rafe was consistent. Rafe was there every single day, just throwing buckets. Uh, there, there wasn't anybody that anybody that could slow him down. He just turned, shoot that shot. It's good. Um, so, you know, people laugh at me. Like they were like, "How did you get drafted 19th in the NBA? You averaged like 12 points a game or something like that." I'm like, I was the sixth option. <laughs> it was Paul, Rafe, Jock. Jared Hass, who, by the way, played his senior year with a broken wrist. Otherwise, he would have had some NBA tryouts as well. Uh, then back to Paul. Then maybe if somebody missed, I'd go get the ball and go put it in. I mean, there was there was a lot of talent on that team. We had guys coming off the bench that ended up playing in the NBA for a little bit. Billy Thomas, who was a hell of a shooter. Uh, Ryan mm-hmm. Robertson and I were teammates in Sacramento for a year. Uh, and, and he took over the starting job when Jock had his broken wrist at the beginning of our senior year. So, I mean, we had a ridiculous amount of talent coming off the bench. Our bench could have beat a lot of big 12 teams. Um, it was a big eight until we won the last big eight my junior year and then the first big 12 uh, yep. my senior year. But, um, I mean, we had uh, – that was, that was a good team. All right, Scott, I want to transition over a little bit and talk about your NBA experience. Obviously, with being drafted, what is that experience like for you? What was your draft night experience, and, and how did you know where you were going to play? So um, I was projected late first round, uh, early second round, and that's what my agent told me. And so um, I didn't go to the draft. Back then it was in New York, um, and uh, – only the lottery guys went, you know, you didn't have a hundred guys there all thinking they were going to be a lottery pick uh, like it seems to be now. Um, and so <clears throat> I went to Vegas. Uh, I was new, newly married. I, I uh, it was my first wife, um, newly married. And, and one of my brothers flew down and, and we were in Vegas and we watched it in the sports book. Uh, because that was the only place it wasn't on national TV. So we had to go to the sports book to catch it. And uh, so, like I said, I was projected late first round, early second round. I went and worked out for every team uh, that was, you know, in that, in that bracket, except for Utah. Uh, And I met with the GM of Utah, the jazz and uh, Phoenix at this all-star game in Phoenix. And he was like, we think it's a great fit. You know, your, your former teammate, Greg Ostertag, is here. Jerry Sloan, the head coach, loves you. We Management loves you. We really think you'd be a great fit for us. I said, yep, you're right, but I'm not coming here. And he was like, what? I was like, listen, I'm, I was born here. I'm related to most of this state. I could fill the arena for 41 home games and still piss off family members. I said, I don't have that in my bag. I don't I don't have that in my in my." personal life to deal with all of the family that I'm going to have to get tickets for every game. And and I said, so I'm not coming here. I said, it's me. It's a me issue. Uh, I agree with you. I'd love to play for Jerry Sloan, uh, but I'm not coming here. So they had the second to last pick of the first round. Chicago had the last pick and that's who ended up picking Jock. But we were wondering why Jock hadn't got picked. I remember arguing and uh, it was like, why isn't Jock getting picked? And again, we're in the sports book, so we don't have sound. We just have the TV. And all of a sudden, they start showing Kansas highlights at the 19th pick. I'm like, oh, finally, Jock got drafted. It's about time. And I'm like, they're showing a lot of me. And then my phone rings, and it was like one of those, you know, open up. and yeah. It sounded like a walkie-talkie because this is 1997. Um And they go, hey, Scott, this is the Detroit Pistons. We just picked you. And I was like, hey. And then I got kicked out of the sports book because you can't be on your phone or you couldn't at the time be on your phone and be in the sports book. So they kicked me out and they, that's, that was my draft night experience. I, they sent me from 
sent me tickets and I flew from Vegas to Detroit the next day for uh, press conferences. And, and that's when I became a Detroit Piston. Not a bad story. That's not a bad story at all. <laughs> but it you. was just, yeah, it was just funny, like arguing about why Jock hadn't been drafted. And so I didn't know until the next day when he got drafted because we had to leave the sports book and I was making plans for Detroit. So it's just funny because we were, you know, Jock was projected to be a lottery pick after our junior year and he decided to come back, uh, broke his wrist and, you know, still had an incredible senior year, but then the draft just was a different draft. Uh, so he, he slid down to the last pick or second to last pick. Okay. So Scott, you obviously had a huge personality while you're at Kansas, but during your professional career, that's where it kind of came a little bit more to light. I mean, the hair, the hairstyles are kind of what you were known for during the NBA. You became almost like a cult figure to many people who followed the NBA. What kind of brought out that personality? Was it just having more freedom being in the NBA? Was it maybe just having a little bit more money? Kind of bring us on the path that developed you to being the character that you, that you became. Uh, well, I've always danced to my own uh, beat. Uh, when I was seventh grade, I dyed my hair blonde. Um, I had a, a, you know, the faux hawk, like I had hair, but then I had a faux hawk. I did that to myself yep. in seventh or eighth grade also. Um, so it had always been a thing. Um, I, I, like I said earlier, I'm the youngest of six. Uh, my whole family is Mormon, um, which is, uh, it's a big part of who I am. I'm not a believer in the, in the church, but it is a big part of my upbringing. And, and, uh, so that, that might be part of that is just kind of rebelling, uh, from the, the strict religious upbringing. Um, but, uh, as far as, you know, like, I showed up to media day one time in college. I think it was my sophomore year with blonde hair. And Roy just looked at me. He goes, come here. We're going to have a talk. And he took me to his office. I was like, "Uh Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe this wasn't a good decision. <laughs> I thought maybe he's going to kick me off the team or something. And he goes, uh, if any of your teammates had done that, they'd be off this team. But he goes, I know you dance yourself to a different drummer. So, uh, I'm allow it, but you know, just, don't go crazy on me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> coach, I'm the same dude. And he goes, all right. And so he got a lot of questions about it on that media day. And he kind of said the same thing, but, um, as far as it continuing the NBA, yeah. Uh, I didn't really paint my nails in the NBA. Uh, I felt like that was kind of played out at college and I was done with it, but, um, the hairstyles are just, you know, Hey, let's see what this looks like. The only thing I never pulled off was an Afro cause I don't have curly hair. But I always wished I had. <laughs> I wanted to try one more hairstyle. That was the one. Um, but now I have one hairstyle, and it's no hair. <laughs> Fire. Yeah. It works. So I'm, I'm glad I got it, it in while I could. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, who is the toughest player that you had to guard in the NBA? Hmm. Uh, Prime Shaq. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, back, oh. my back still hurts. Um that dude, um, prime, prime Shaq was about 360 pounds. Don't believe the hype. Uh, I know what 360 feels like. My dad was 360 and, uh, Shaq was every bit of 360 pounds. Yao was really hard to, to move. Like Yao just went where he wanted to. But if you bodied up Yao, he wasn't going to spin off you and catch a lob dunk. And that's Shaq. You, you couldn't just muscle Shaq because I tried. And not only is it a losing <laughs> battle, but also he had that such crazy quick athleticism uh, that he just spin off you and and get a, you know he he had the hook and they let him get away with that hook, but there was literally nothing you could do. I know what the guys that had to guard Will Chamberlain felt like um, because that's that's how dominant Shaq was in his prime. I mean, he was fast. Uh, he he'd spin on you, he'd shove you out of the way and dunk on your face. I mean. Dude was uh, that was the toughest guy I had to guard. And I I guarded my idols. I, I guarded Patrick Ewing. I guarded Hakeem Olajuwon. I put my hands on Charles Barkley. Um, you know these are guys that I grew up watching, and I was like in the same league with them. And it was that was my welcome to the NBA moment. I'm out there guarding Patrick Ewing my rookie year. I'm like, what the hell is going on in my life? Uh, but uh, you get used to it real quick because you you got to compete. <laughs> you, you can't be yeah. you can't be in awe. Uh, of the guys you're playing against, you gotta, you gotta compete with them. But, 
Uh, I mean, I guarded Yao Ming. I, the, some of the greatest players, centers that have ever played the game, I, I played against. You know, Carl Malone. Um, these guys that that you, you when you think this this was one of the greatest centers of all time. Tim, uh, Tim Duncan and I were the same age, but um, guarded Tim. David Robinson, his teammate. And David was slowed by a back injury at the end of his career, early in my career. But um, yeah, I, I feel like. I guarded a lot of the best and still Shaq prime Shaq was, was the toughest. It was just, were, were, were any of those guys shit talkers? Like did they, were they letting you know about it or was it more of, um, just Charles, uh, and, and Charles is a great man. We're friends to this day, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he'd be like, rookie, you don't want none of this. Really? Y'all put a rookie on me. Like just he he was always talking. He hasn't shut up since. He still talks. He's still talking. So, um, but you know that the rest of them. Tim Duncan was well known for how quiet he was. Um, he would just once in a while he'd be like, "Oops," because he's about to score on you, and, he, and like he <laughs> he'd, he'd make you stutter or miss, and he'd be like, "Oops," and you score it. Like that's worse. <laughs> that's worse. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like Kevin Garnett used to talk a lot. Um, I hated Kevin until we were teammates. Uh, and then, yeah. and then when we were teammates, I realized why I hated him because he's a, he's a competitor guy plays his ass off all the time and he, he works. Uh, and that's what I love about him as a teammate is, is those guys that I used to hate playing against. And all of a sudden I'm teammates with him, like Reggie Miller, same thing. I mean, literally the first guy in the gym every day at 38 years old when we were teammates, and he's in there before everybody else, getting ready, shooting, after practice, same thing. So, uh, anyway, I'm going off on tangents. Prime Shack. That's awesome. That's awesome. And actually, that kind of that kind of ropes into our next question. Actually, I have just kind of a one off. Just to you weren't were you on the team during the Malice in the Palace or no? With India, you were. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Just give us a brief. I I don't want you to get too. Just give us a brief. On kind of yeah, what was like even going through your mind during that? Well, we the game was was done. We 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 had won. We had won handily, uh, but our coach wanted to send a message. Rick Carlisle wanted to send a message because they knocked us out of the playoffs the year before, the spring before, and we yeah. were we were supposed to win. We were ranked above them. I think we had the best record in the East or in the league or something like that. And so we were supposed to win it all the year the previous spring, and Detroit knocked us out. So Rick wanted to send a message, and we sent it. But he still had the starters in, and it was getting chippy. And no one talks about this, but if the coaches had taken the starters out of the game, that night never happens. Uh, we, we win the game, and, and it's just another game. And, and that doesn't happen, and we don't lose half our team to suspensions. Um, so Ron, at the time, refused his mental, mental health uh, issues. He refused medication. He refused to go to treatments. Um, he would disappear on us many times throughout the year, uh, show up to practice barefoot, uh, in shorts in the middle of winter in Indiana. Um, just, you know, he was, he was somebody that once he was playing, you could depend on him, him being an incredible player. Uh, but there were times when he'd walk into practice and we'd just go tick, 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 it was just a matter of time before coach threw him out of practice because you just, you could tell when he'd come in and sometimes he just wasn't there. And so we saw that we saw it coming and he should have been taken out of the game and he wasn't. And him and Ben kept yelling at each other and kept hitting each other. And and then he gets the foul called on him and he does the most passive aggressive thing a person could do. He goes and lays on the scorer's table. I mean, that's just in Detroit. I mean, that's, what what do you think was going to happen? You, you're beating the crap out of our team, and you go lay on the scorers table. I mean, the fans, especially in Detroit. Yeah, the fans went nuts, and Detroit was such a great place to play uh, in those days. That that era, not when I was there as a player, but years later when they were winning championships again. I mean, that that crowd was incredible, and they did not like that one bit. And so Ronnie totally started it, um, got the stuff thrown at him. Jumps up, runs into the stands, beats up the wrong dude. Wasn't even the guy that threw the beer at him. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, it was awful. It was awful. Um, you know, we're, we're standing there and I, 
I had been suspended for a game before uh, when I was with the Kings uh, for stepping onto the court during a fight. And so I was like, I'm not moving. I'm not spending that money. Uh, for me, uh, you know, the $5,000 fine that I had to pay for getting suspended. Okay. That sucks. Right. They also took one eighty second of my pay. That's a whole game. One eighty second of my annual salary got taken away for missing that game. So people don't think about that. That, that step onto the court cost me $60,000. I wasn't about to spend any money during the malice in the palace and, and step on the court again. <laughs> love you guys, but I love my money more. I earned this. I'm not giving it away. <laughs> no one's threatening me. What, what does the locker room look like after that? Like, what? I mean, obviously, the cra- one of the craziest events in NBA history. Like, what do you like? What does the, locker room, what does the coach even say? Well, they, there was fights. There was players fighting each other. Coaches fighting players. Our our coaches and our players fighting. Like, had to be separated physically. Um, and finally it gets calmed down and Ron Artest looks around and he goes, do y'all think we're going to get fined for that? <laughs> um, that was, that was the state of his, his mind at the time. And he's an incredible advocate for mental health. Now I'm really happy for him. He does really good things for other people now. And, and so I'm glad that he is doing that. Um, but at the time, yeah, we just, it, it was a mess in the locker room. Everything was ripped up. Uh, my suit was ruined. I had all kinds of shit thrown on me as I was pushing everybody out to the tunnel. When they finally called the game, we didn't even finish the game. They called it and people were just throwing shit at us as I'm trying to just shove players. Cause players are like, I'm going to go get that guy. Like, no, no, you're not. No, let's just get the hell out of here. <laughs> like, uh, the rookie, uh, David Harrison jumped up and grabbed a chair and threw it on somebody. I'm like, dude, you're going to go to jail. And he almost did. He, he, he hit somebody with a chair and he pled guilty or something like that. And ended up not going to jail, but he paid a bunch of fines and he got suspended and lost a lot of salaries for his rookie year as well. But I mean, it was the locker room was it was a mess. We, they tore it up. Um, my suit, like I said, was torn. I threw that suit away. Uh, it, it, <laughs> and then the next time we went back, because wow. we had to go back for the next game, they called in a bomb threat. So we had to leave the arena. They closed the arena down and we had to clear out and they searched for a bomb. And they're like, it's up to you guys. If you want to go back in and play, I'm like, no, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I got outvoted by a bunch of idiots. They were like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll risk my life to go play a basketball game. I was like, guys, I got a lot to live for. I really like this thing called life. I'm not risking <laughs> it to go. Like, what if there's a bomb in there? And they're like, well, they didn't find one. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point when you when you have a bomb in a building, they hide it. It's they not going to be sitting there where everybody can find it. You think they searched, they searched an entire NBA arena in 20 minutes and they're confident they, they there's no way there's a bomb in there? They're like, well, they think it was a hoax. We ended up playing the game and we didn't die, but, man, I, was, that, I did not like that. I, I didn't like that my teammates were like, no, let's just go play the game. I'm like, no, fuck that. <laughs> I like living, but... Yeah. yeah, that that whole wow. malice in the palace that, that shouldn't have happened. It, it was easily avoidable uh, were it not for the coaches' egos uh, as well as the players' egos. And, and starters, you guys know, when it's, a, when it's a blowout, starters don't want to be in the game anymore. They did their jobs. You know, the heavy minute guys did their jobs. They won the game or they lost the game, whatever. The losers are pissed and the winners are done. They're like, hey, let's get the guys on the bench some minutes. I'm, I'm going to rest. I got a game tomorrow night. In, in yeah. Cleveland, you know, we got a game next in t- two more days. Uh, we got to change time zones. I don't, I don't want to be here, but your final playing, your final year playing in the NBA, you're with the Celtics and you guys ended up winning a championship. Kind of walk us through just that season a little bit. And what made you kind of be like, Hey, this is it. Finish out on the top. Um, actually, uh, the year before I was done. Um, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I wrote a letter to myself that I was going to play in the NBA for 10 years. Uh, and I did it, uh, got to the Western conference finals. I got to the Eastern conference finals with the Pacers, with the Cavaliers, got to the NBA finals with the Cavaliers in 10 years. And I was like, you know what? I'm just never going to win one. So 10 years was my goal and I was done. Uh, and then my agent called and said, Hey, Boston wants to sign you. They said, come help us win a championship. I said, nah, I'm good. I don't want to move again. And uh, then my financial advisor was like, well, if you, 
if you go to Boston, you can charter planes once in a while on vacation. And I was like, I, I really like chartering planes. It's, it's, you know, private, <laughs> private travel is a lot more fun than commercial travel. Um, it's not worth it, but it kind of is. If you can afford it, I highly recommend it. I can't afford it now, but back then I was, I could. So uh, that's really why I, I ended up going. Um, I went house shopping myself in Boston, and they have a law in the Commonwealth uh, that you cannot rent a house that's uh, older than 1972 uh, if you have children. And I had a newborn. He was nine months old. And so that eliminated about all of the rentals in the suburbs because Boston's old <laughs> yeah. and it's a lead paint thing, but you can't even like sign a waiver. You just can't rent a place that's older than 1972 period. So uh, I ended up renting a, on a, a condo in the, in the sky downtown uh, on the, near the South uh, station on top of the intercontinental. And uh, I will not embarrass myself by admitting publicly how much I spent per month on that place. But let's just say it was a very, very expensive rental. Um, it had three bed, four bedrooms, four baths overlooking Logan Airport and South Boston and all of the hotel amenities and 24 hour concierge parking underneath the building. It was that was living. And, and I said that was my last year. So I'm going to enjoy this. And so I ended up spending um, the fall uh, and early part of the winter there by myself, really got to know the city, walked to practices sometimes, walked to games sometimes. Uh, but the, the sad thing is, is the first day I was there in September, uh, we were playing pickup games and I rolled my ankle and uh, I'd had some ankle issues and man, that, that one, it wasn't good. I, I kept playing, of course, because I'm an idiot. Uh, finish the day and the trainer takes my tape off and my ankles just swollen up. He's like, Jesus, when did this happen? I was like, first game, don't worry about it. Ice it up. Let's go. Um, and, uh, next day I come in and it's, it's really swollen. I can't move very well. And I fought through that for, um, cause we went to Europe. We went uh, to Italy, to Rome, and then we were going to England and I'm walking around Rome and Danny Ains, the general manager looks at my ankle and he goes, get the fuck out of here. You're going home. <laughs> it was too swollen. So he sent me home. I didn't get to go to England with the team. They put me on a commercial flight back home. I uh, got an MRI and the doctor was like, you're getting surgery. I was like, no, I'm not. And he goes, well, you might make it the rest of the season and you might not, but you're going to need surgery at some point. And I said, well, we're going on a championship run. So how, how long, if I get that surgery, how long am I out? He goes about four months. I said, that's February. Nah, I'm not missing this season. I'm I'm going to help this team win a championship. And ironically, in February was when it gave out. I was guarding Shaq in uh, the Phoenix, and I turned to run, and it the the tendon finally popped the rest of the way, and it ruptured completely. And I acted like nothing was wrong, but I couldn't really push off. And Kendrick Perkins was out, so I was starting. And uh, the next night we're in Portland. And I jumped off the wrong foot the whole time in, in warmups, uh, acted like I was just fine. And um, Joel Prisbilla, I don't know if you remember that name. He was uh, yeah. not an all-star. Let's just put it that way. He was, uh, he was a functional role player. Um, and uh, he, I had him boxed out and ball went up and I tried to get it and I couldn't. I ended up fouling him and he got an and one. And Doc Rivers takes me out and he goes, you're done, sit down. Something's wrong. He goes, I go, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. He goes, no, Scott, you can't jump. There's something wrong. I was like, coach, I never could jump. <laughs> he didn't buy it. <laughs> so they sent me home and uh, they did another MRI. And that was what it was like. Yeah, you physically can't play anymore. And so that was the hardest part about that season was I knew we were on pace to win a championship. We had the pieces together. You know, they had just spent all their money getting Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen there uh, to go with Paul Pierce. And I mean, I knew it. And, and so it was just, it was hard to swallow that pill. I was, you know, like I had said, the, the year before I was ready to be done playing forever. Uh, but, but then I got a taste of, damn, we're finally going to, I'm finally going to be on a championship team uh, after being on all the teams in high school, college and previous NBA teams that could have, would have, should have. And I had to watch the team that I was on go and win a championship and, so I ended up uh, 
I got that ankle operated on and I was like, well, that one doesn't hurt because I have back issues. So my left leg is mostly numb anyway. That one didn't really bother me. And I said, but my right ankle is the one that hurts. And they looked at my right ankle. It was exactly the same. Uh, so as soon as I was out of the boot, in my left foot, I got my right ankle surgery too. So I got both my ankles rebuilt in the spring of uh, 2008 while my team was going on to win a championship. Uh, but I got a ring. Paul Pierce won me an NBA ring. And uh, I've, I've said it multiple times, but I wear that ring for all the teams. Like I said, high school, I was playing in the playoffs every year. College, same thing. And my senior year, we should have gotten one of those uh, rings for Roy. Should have been the first one he ever won. And uh, uh, definitely Sacramento Kings, you know, we, we should have won one in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. We choked in, in Game 7. Uh, and, and lost that one. Game six was a travesty, but we, we choked at home in, in game seven. Uh, with the Pacers, we get to the Eastern Conference Finals, and the Detroit Pistons knock us out, get to the NBA Finals with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Spurs just swept us. Didn't even give us a chance. Um, and so I, I've, I've been on some good teams that could have, would have, should have, and uh, so I wear this ring for all those. That's freaking awesome. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you, one of the things that the fans had asked us about was your, your experience on Survivor. Uh, I wanted to ask, is that is reality TV where you get done shooting the skit and then you walk off and you're sipping Mai Tais on the beach? Or is it, is it like, what, what is the reality behind reality TV? So I, I kind of thought that was it, even though they told us beforehand uh, it's, it's real. Um, and it's real. There, there is no... Uh, break. I lost 46 pounds in 28 days on the show. Uh, I was hungry and, uh, thirsty and thirsty. <laughs> um, and I, it, the good news is, is I was, I started at three eleven, So I just got back down to playing weight, which was nice. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I was down in the low two hundreds or anything. I just got back down to like two sixty six or something like that. But, um, it was, it's definitely real. Um, the bug bites, the infections, they lost, they'll never go back to Cambodia. That's where we filmed. Uh, they lost like 20 crew members to illness and, and infections. Uh, we were all taking malaria pills the whole time. And then I was like, what are the side effects of the malaria pills? And they're like, oh, nightmares and this. And I'm like, oh yeah. So that's why I'm having nightmares. Awesome. <laughs> so I said, what, what's the cure? And he goes, oh, if you get malaria, we just give you a bunch of these pills and it'll cure you. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to risk getting malaria then. So I stopped taking the malaria pills. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the surviving part is very real. Now the edit, think about it this way. And I, I, back when I used to give speeches, I would talk about this, about presenting yourself and, and um, the best version of yourself. Uh, when I was on survivor three days, was the average amount of time that they would film us 24 hours a day. They're, they're filming you in the dark. There's, there's a whole big wall of, of, uh, night vision, um, cameras and they film everything. Uh, even when you're sleeping, just in case you get up and go look for an idol, they, you got to tell the producer, uh, but there's always somebody awake watching you, but it's three days for one 40, 40 minute episode. Cause 20 minutes of commercials back then. I don't know what it is now, but back then that was three days. So, in the last three days, have you done something dumb? Have you said something you wish you hadn't said? Have you been funny? Have you been smart? Have you been just a dick? Chances are all those things is probably a yes. Well, they can take all that footage and they can put it all together and they can kind of make you look however you want. Um, some people that I was on the show with, and I knew this going in, I was like, yeah, they're, I'm probably going to be a villain. I saw the other tattooed guy. And I was like, well, Jason, we're probably going to be villains. Let's live it up. And we did. We had a great time. We had a blast. And people, I got death threats. Uh, my wife was pregnant when the show finally came out. And people were saying, I hope your baby is born still. I mean, people are horrible. This is social media. You guys know. Um, but yeah. we, we got all kinds of hatred just because of reality TV. And so that's the problem, Mitch, is people think that reality TV is real. Uh, but they don't, they forget that it's a game show. I was trying to win a million dollars. I didn't try to make any friends out there. I wasn't trying to like, uh, you know, do what I would do in my real life. Uh, it was a game show. I felt like I was on the prices, right. You know, like, Hey, Oh no, put the fire out. Yeah, fine. Somebody's done that before. It was nothing I had that nobody on survivor had ever done. 
but the the amount of hate that you get uh, for being a villain on the show, some people on our cast really had a hard time with their edit and and their mental health. They had to go to counseling. Um, and there's a guy I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there was a guy on a previous season. He had to like be institutionalized for a short amount of time uh, because of the PTSD he had from the show. He just he he lost it. Like he was he really had some struggles, and I heard he's okay, but I don't know. But um, so yeah, it, it's both real and it's also heavily edited, uh, and so wow. it's it, it can it can mess with with people that are there's even contestants you know on the show that that think it's real you know and i'm like this sucks but i mean it's like a long camping trip and getting voted out was the best thing in the world i had 11 days of vacation where i was eating and drinking mai tais on the beach (laughs) all i had to do was wait for a jury meeting i'm like this is sweet i'm swimming in the ocean every day the only thing that was missing was my family it was awesome um, the, the 11 days after, but, but yeah, the, the game and by the way, don't mention to Jeff Probst that he's from Kansas. He doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> how fast, how fast did you put on the weight that you lost? I mean, you said you lost over 40 pounds. How fast did that take you after? Um, it took a while. Cause I actually liked being thin again. Um, it's, it's easier on my knees when I'm under 300 pounds. Um, they hurt. And so I try to stay under 300 as much as I can. I stayed there. Uh, I, I mean, I, I bounced back up to 280 pretty quick. Um, but I stayed under 290 for probably a few years after that. And then problem is my wife is an incredible chef. Uh, she, she makes, she cooks literally every single day. We, we hardly leave the house to eat because she cooks every meal, uh, from scratch and she makes, you know, make sure the kids aren't eating you know, what is a lot of our food supply is poisoned. Uh, so yeah. she tries to shop around that and avoid those kind of foods. Um, but it's tough, but, um, you know, everything she makes is so good. It's hard to just portion control is my problem. It's, it's all good for you, <laughs> but, uh, it's like, Oh, this is good. I'm gonna have five more. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. It is. It is. She's, a, she's an incredible person. All right, everybody, that's it for another episode of Rock Chalk Unplugged. Scott, we want to say thank you for coming on. A great, great guest, great story. Uh, your time at KU was special. Your time after KU was special. And then your time after the NBA was also special with your, with your time in reality TV and being an actor. So thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Rock Chalk Unplugged. Like, subscribe, and leave us a comment down below. Rock Chalk. <laughs>